Okay. Good morning to one and all again, and everyone who may be joining us this morning. We will do what we typically do. We're going to go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing, and then we'll read our text and then expound the testimony of the Lord Jesus from it. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you have given us to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. These things that you've spoken, even through the mouths of the prophets, speaking to his coming and the work that he would accomplish in the salvation of his people, the testimony of which has been put in awe of his creation as a sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for myself that the Holy Spirit would speak and also that the hearers will hear not from me, but from him. We thank you for all that you've done already. We thank you for keeping us and blessing us beyond measure, even more than we deserve. We honor you, glorify you in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are in Isaiah 49. Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah 49, and this is going to be from the New King James, verses 1 to 11. The Lord says, Listen, all coastlands, to me and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have had you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate 
heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road and my highways shall be elevated. And that is the word of the Lord. There was just a whole lot more material to cover. I had thought to go through the whole chapter, but I realized that the message would have been five and a half hours. <laughs> and this one also is going to be very long because there's a lot of gospel, wonderful things to glean. And for a title, we have three titles that are related the faithful servant or the suffering servant or God's suffering servant, that's one. Mount Everest testimony. Mount Everest testimony. And then a contraption of the two, God's suffering servant and Mount Everest. <laughs> It is that Mount Everest that drew me to this. I was like, okay. I have a lot of nuggets here to share. And we're going to tie things together. And it will be long ways before we get to the Mount Everest. So if someone was thinking that we're just going to stick around for 15, 20 minutes, and then after them just being curious about Mount Everest, and then they're gone, too bad for you. You're going to have to stick around for the next two hours. <laughs> before we get to that. The scriptures are a testimony of the Lord Jesus. All of the scriptures, they are a testimony, the bear witness of the Lord Jesus, God's suffering and faithful servant, in the salvation or restoration of his people from their captivity. And we cannot talk about salvation without talking about our own captivity to sin and what sin has done. The language of salvation is couched on a people who were once under captivity. Otherwise, they would not have needed salvation. And the captives must be set free. The blind must have their eyes opened. The dead must be raised back to life. And the lame must be made able to walk straight. Hence, the language of redemption, the language of ransom, of deliverance the language of justification. You can't justify someone who was never a sinner. And the captivity of his people by sin was captured in Israel's captivity to Babylon and Assyria in this particular context. And so 
Their promised deliverance was a picture that was anticipative of the work of the Lord Jesus in the salvation of all his people. And so where we find pictures of captivity, we also find gospel pictures of redemption, of salvation. And God is too much of a practical teacher. He just does not write sermons. He dramatized the spiritual realities in the lives of his people in sickness, in blindness, even through their captivity to foreign nations. We saw Israel in captivity in Egypt and how he delivered them through the Passover lamb in captivity for 430 years only to preach a message of Christ. That's a long sermon. 430 years of writing a sermon through the lives of his people. So we saw Israel wandering in the desert, hungering and thirsting, and the Lord continued to preach the gospel by raining manna from heaven and gave them water from the rock. He sent them fiery serpents to bite them to death, but also delivered some by the raised bronze serpent. You see what God is doing? He's preaching, but he's too much of a practical preacher. But he did not stop preaching. He took them into another foreign captivity, Babylon and Assyria, and promised to deliver them once again. And in chapters 40 to 48 of Isaiah, we hear salvation preached and promised to the Jews through God's servant, Cyrus. He was the one appointed and prophesied to bring about the restoration of the Jews to their land. And Cyrus was a prominent type of Christ and would not fail in his God-given mission. Cyrus was not going to fail because God said he was going to do it. And in Isaiah 49, 57, we have a mirror of Isaiah 42, 48. Isaiah 49 to 57 is a mirror of Isaiah 40 to 48. And in Isaiah 49 to 48, God would deal with his suffering servant, the coming of his suffering servant to do the same things that he prophesied through Cyrus, but as the fulfillment of the type but both in prophecy. So Cyrus is prophesying about Christ, and in Isaiah 49 to 57, the Christ comes and he is speaking as the fulfillment of what God had promised, and yet look into the future. You see that? So we are told in Isaiah 44, verse 24, 
Isaiah 44, verse 24, that says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, all by myself. Who spreads abroad the earth by myself? I did not get help from anyone. In Isaiah 44, 28, who says of Cyrus, I am the Lord, the one who made the heavens and the earth. I am saying this of Cyrus. He is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And Isaiah 45, 13. Speaking of Cyrus again, Cyrus was going to be the king of Persia. And Cyrus knows nothing about the God of the Bible. And yet God says, I'm going to raise a faithful servant, Cyrus is his name, and he's going to do all my work. Isaiah 45, 13, I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. So you see those pictures, allusions, and language that is used in reference to Cyrus is also going to be used in reference to Christ Jesus. These are Christological themes. But in the introduction of God's suffering seven in Isaiah 49, verse 1 to 13, we are given the seventh mission, and it is the servant himself who opens the chapter speaking and saying, and that means we're going to go straight to Isaiah 49, verse 1. God's suffering servant comes and says, Listen, all coastlands to me and take heed. You peoples from afar, the Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. So the servant introduces himself and says, Oh, Coslands, listen to me. Hear me, someone, somewhere. I have something important to say, something that is worthy of your attention, of your consideration. Take heed. Pay attention, you peoples from afar. Listen to me because of my message and calling. I have a special calling and I have a special message. And I presume these people of the Coslands were an address to the Gentiles because it is they at the time who are or were referred to as the peoples from afar who were later brought near by the blood of the cross according to Ephesians chapter 2. But it could also be in reference to all God's elect people who are scattered from all corners of the earth. 
whether Jew or Gentile. And God 7 says, The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. So this is clearly the Lord Jesus who is speaking of his being set apart from birth to do God's work. The Lord Jesus was the elect one of God, not elect by grace, but elect as the one through whom God's eternal purpose would be accomplished. The Lord Jesus was not made elect by grace. It was speaking to the fact that it was through him that God's eternal purpose would be accomplished, especially in our salvation. Verse 2 of Isaiah 49, And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. And I see many things spoken here. He says, God made his mouth like a sharp sword, and that is to cut and to destroy his enemies, destroy the disobedient, and also to speak the truth. And that in keeping with the revelation of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, how his words and teaching were piercing and were cutting like a sharp sword even to his parents. And that is why Jesus was hated. Jesus was not always meek and mild as people want to make of him and giving hugs to everyone. <laughs> his words were more than an exercise of free speech because many have the right to free speech, but they still speak nonsense. So the Lord Jesus was the proclaimer of the truth. As John would say, grace and truth came by him. He was the bringer and the proclaimer of truth. And this was the sharpness of the sword of his mouth, according to Hebrews 4. Let's go to Hebrews 4. Verse 12 and 13. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. The writer of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God that is living is Christ Jesus. It is not the Bible. It is Christ himself. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So this is in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, can you disconnect that thing? 
And this was Apostle John's vision of him, the Son of Man, in Revelation 1, verse 16, the Revelation testimony of the Lord Jesus is Apostle John was on the island of Patmos. This is what John saw. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. That's his brightness. Revelation 19, 11 to 16 John says, now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. <laughs> so he is the Word of God. Christ is. It's not speaking to some written words, speaking to a person. Christ is the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God comes and is with Christ Jesus. And he has on his robe, verse 16, and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. On his robe and on his thigh. And inscription. He did not go to a tattoo parlor to get this done. He wasn't playing games. Also, still in Revelation 19, you can go to verse 21 and consider what John says about the sword that proceeded out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse and the slaughter that it caused. And if this servant had such a mouth as the word of God, then he always had it. He did not get it from his mother. He did not learn this from high school. This just anticipated the incarnation of the Logos of one who was God already, the word of God. God was always like this right from the beginning.
The incarnation was only the revelation of this God. The word made flesh. Hebrews 4.13 And there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that means this word of God is omniscient and omnipresent. And if that's true, then he is God. Because God alone knows all things and sees all things. Verse 2 again of Isaiah 49. Let's go back to Isaiah 49. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. I believe this is also in reference to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus in that his glory was hidden. It was veiled, hidden in God, and yet in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ, deity, his power was hidden, but he never set it aside. There's a lot of teaching about that, that when Jesus came and became man, he set aside the prerogatives of his deity. No, he never set anything aside. He just veiled it. He still was keeping the planets from crashing into each other. He still was sustaining life even as he was in the manger. He never set anything aside. Verse 3 of Isaiah 49, And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This servant is called O Israel, and in whom God will be glorified. And this statement gives another dimension, actually the proper dimension to understand the matter of who truly is Israel. In this prophecy by the Lord Jesus, he says the father called him his servant and called him Israel. And that means the Lord Jesus is the true fulfillment of what Israel means and is. Christ Jesus is God's Israel. He is the prince who has power with God. For there is only but one prince who has power. And it is not the nation of the people of ethnic Israel there in Palestine by the person of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus was not only the son of David, but also he was true David. If you read Ezekiel and Isaiah, you're going to find in the Psalms, the references of David are applied to the Lord Jesus. He is David. That's why when you read the testimony of David, you cannot understand it apart from applying it to the Lord Jesus. 
And of course, people get offended and say, oh, David could not be a type of Christ because he took someone's wife. It's because they don't understand how God preaches. God is a practical preacher, offensive preacher at that. So the spiritual reality that Israel as a nation failed to do and to be to God was to be found and to be fulfilled in this true Israel, God's servant. All of God's promises are only yes and amen in Christ. And so he is the true Israel of God. So Israel must be understood in reference to the Lord Jesus first. And then in reference to his church. And then in reference to his church. Because the church is tied to the true Israel. But in this servant, God will be glorified. How? Because he will come to do the will of him who sent him. The will of the Father. This is how God is going to be glorified through this servant. John 6, 37 to 40. John 6, 37 to 40, the Lord Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out because they did not come to me of their own will. They came to me because the Father sent them. For I have come down from heaven, verse 38, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me. I should lose nothing. I should lose not one. But should raise it up at the last day, none of those who were given to the Son by the Father will be lost. So by definition, anyone who professes to be a Christian and believes that the redeemed can be lost. For whatever reason, are not telling the truth. They're lying. They are not telling the truth on Christ. This is what he says, verse 20, verse 40, sorry. And this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I'll raise him up at the last day in the resurrection of the dead. 
will be raised to life. They will be glorified together with him. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him, we see the Son by faith. So faith is evidence that we have been given to the Son by the Father. Faith is also evidence of our future resurrection. Yeah, it is. So people downplay faith and want to talk about your own obedience. We have no obedience of our own to talk about. It's all about faith in him and faith as evidence of possession, not as causing possession. Faith does not cause us to possess anything. It shows that we already are possessed by Christ. John 12, 27-28. John 12, 27-28. The Lord Jesus again. Now my soul is troubled. And why shall I say... Father, save me from this hour, the hour of the cross. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to deal with people's marriages, please. (laughs) He came for a much higher purpose. For this purpose, I came to this hour to redeem my people. That's what he came to do. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. When the son was concluding his work to glorify the father, On the earth. This is what he said. Still in John. Let's go to John 17. John 17. Verse 1 to 5. Jesus spoke these words. Lifted up his eyes to heaven. And said. Father the hour has come. Remember in John 12 he said. For this purpose I came to this hour. And now he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That your son also may glorify you. The hour is the appointed time that Christ will die from eternity. That is why the Passover had to be done at a particular time of the year in anticipation of the hour of the glorification of the Son in his death as God's Passover lamb. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh to serve everyone who wants to be served. (laughs) Because if he has authority over all flesh, then he should just save everyone. No, he says that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. That's election. 
that particular redemption, eternal life to only as many as were given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. According to Jesus, that's the definition of eternal life to know God and to know Christ. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth in keeping with what the servant said in Isaiah 49, that God will be glorified in him. I have glorified you on the earth. I have, this is the reason, finished the work which you have given me to do. I finished it. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was Jesus never said he was God because people don't know how to read the Bible. Jesus is about 33 years old here according to the flesh, but he comes and stretches time back to eternity and says, glorify me together with you with the glory that I had from before the foundation of the world. So Christ Jesus, God's servant, glorified the Father by the finishing of the work that he was given to do, and that work was the salvation of his people of all time, their justification from their sins, the giving of eternal life to as many as were given him. Eternal life was given by him, and we should not. And do not play politics with this matter for the sake of keeping peace with the different tribes. <laughs> no, we don't play games. We play all other games, but we, when we get to this business, we are as serious as we can be. We must say what it is that Jesus came to do. Because God's glory is tied to what he did. He would glorify God in his work. And if Jesus did not justify his people, which was one of his job descriptions, then he did not do the will of the Father. Therefore, he did not glorify God. And we cannot accept that testimony as legitimate gospel. God is and was glorified in and through the person and work of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 of Isaiah 49. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. This is speaking to the rejection that the Lord had from his own, as John recorded in John 1, John 1, 10 to 11. John says he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. So he thought uh, he had labored in vain. Because he came to the Jews and they rejected him. 
And he is speaking here as to the manner of man. He is not saying, I have failed in my mission. He is speaking in the manner of man. As you see in the, in the Gospels, the Lord would also be frustrated by the rejection of him by the Jews. Let's hear John 6. Let's go to John 6. We want to develop the matter of the laboring in vain and what context Jesus was saying that. John 6 from verse 60 to 67. John 6, 60 to 67. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear this? Who can understand it? And the hard saying was about Jesus having said, If anyone should be saved, if anyone should have eternal life, they were to eat of his flesh and to drink of his blood. He did not mean it literally, but they took it literally. And so it was very repulsive to those who had him. They did not like that. They said, this is a hard saying. This gospel is a hard saying. How can one have eternal life by drinking the blood of another person and eating their flesh? And yet Jesus was making reference to the cross. The shedding of his blood. Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? The disciples did not really say anything. It seems they were just baffled and they kept quiet and Jesus knew exactly why they were quiet. Because the text says he knew in himself. That's omniscience. And he says, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before you see, Jesus again is telling us that he did not begin to exist in Mary's womb. This is a reference back to the beginning of John 1. In the beginning was the word. Jesus saying, don't play with me. I am not an ordinary person. What if you see the Son of Man ascending where he used to be? And that was a reference to heaven. And everybody was like, what is he talking about? And then Jesus continues with offense. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The flesh profits nothing. The law profits nothing. That's his point. Your obedience profits nothing. If you should have life, it comes from my words. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father 
no one comes to Christ unless God has granted it. And people wonder and say, oh, I believe in Christ, but I do not think that I am saved because I just don't see myself as a good Christian. The question is, have you come to Christ? But Jesus says, no one comes to me and believes the testimony about me as God has given unless it has been granted him or her by the Father. It has to be granted. That's the sign. Faith is the sign of your salvation. From that time, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They stopped following him. And this is what the Lord meant in Isaiah 49 when he said, I have labored in vain. Because he was left alone. Then Jesus said to the twelve. So he was left with the twelve. And he says to them, do you also want to go away with them? You want go. I don't care. <laughs> I'm not here to build a mega church. Jesus is not in the mega church business. Jesus is not looking for people who want to be served because there's no one who wants to be served. A person who wants to be served is only so because God makes them willing. In the day of his power, he makes his people willing. Now, to the matter of rejection, this is a very pervasive theme in the Gospels, as I said. Let's go to Luke 20, beginning at verse 9 to 19. Luke 20, 9 to 19. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant and they beat him also, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. This is the rejection of God's prophets by Israel in their history. Then the owner of the vineyard said, that is God, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. You see, the son is the heir. Jesus is saying, I am the son and I am the heir of all things God. Come, they say, let us kill him. That the inheritance may be ours, and it's amazing the play of words because it's a gospel statement too to say if the heir should be killed, then we also share in the inheritance. The inheritance may be ours also through the death of the heir. Jesus is preaching gospel. Even though there's also 
an underlying rejection of him in that. But Jesus was a gospel preacher. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And if they did kill him, then the inheritance became ours. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. The others there is in reference to the Gentiles, because these are the Jews who, even with the death of Christ, they rejected him. They thought they were putting him out. And what they did not know, that they were falling into God's hand, because that's how salvation was going to come. As they said in the trial with Pilate, let his blood be upon us and our children. Crucify him. They're speaking from ignorance, but they're telling God's truth. If the Christ should die and his blood is shed, then that will be their salvation as happened with Egypt, with their Egyptian experience in the Exodus. The blood of the Passover lamb is what gave them freedom from their captivity. So if the Christ, the Passover, is killed, then that would be their salvation. They don't know what they're talking about, but God knows what he is talking about. So, and when they had it, we are still in the book of Luke, and when they had it, that's the end of verse 16, that's the chief priests and the scribes. When they had what Jesus said, they said, certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone that the builders, builders are the people who are supposed to know everything about stones and bricks. So they're constructing their own houses. They look at it. They're like, no, this is not fit for anything. Let's throw it out. The very stone that the builders rejected, Jesus says, has become the chief cornerstone that holds the whole house together. And whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. I pray that we fall on the stone and be broken. We don't want Christ falling on us. <laughs> Verse 19. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They understood that Jesus had given this parable of his rejection because of them. And Isaiah had prophesied the same later on, Isaiah 53, in verse 3, and said this about the rejection of Christ. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, 
our faces from him, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So this servant of God was a suffering servant. He was hated and suffered rejection. And that is what is recorded in the experience in the statement in Isaiah 49.4 where he said again, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. But that was not the end of the statement. This is just half of the statement. But not all hope was lost. And he qualified it this way. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And that to say the Lord Jesus did not determine the success of his mission by how many people who followed him or agreed with him or how many mega churches were formed in his name or how much money was collected in his name. That's not how he measures the matter of success in the business. He did not put or ascribe his success to what people did with him. But to the God who had commissioned him, he said, my just reward for my work is not to be graded by the people. It is not with the people. Whether they accept or reject me, it does not matter. My reward, my evaluation, and my strength is with God. My work is with God. And that is true with every spiritual, with every faithful preacher of the gospel. Their work is with God. It is not in the numbers of the people. If Jesus, who was God in the flesh, was rejected, and he thought in his humanity, oh, I have labored in vain, it seems like I have labored in vain. What more of me? <laughs> it seems I am laboring in vain, but as the Lord, I'll take a cue from him because he knows what he's talking about. The work is with God. It is he who commissioned Christ Jesus, and it is he who has commissioned me to preach the same gospel. And our reward promised is in Christ Jesus. It is not in getting more money or building a big building. That's not how this thing works. Isaiah 53, verse 12 to the matter of reward also, because God did promise his servant a reward in the aftermath 
of his suffering and justification of his people. God says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Those are the two thieves on the cross. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So as the Lord Jesus was on the cross, he was making intercession for all his people. We, the transgressors, he was just not idly hanging on the cross. He was doing some priestly work, making intercession for the transgressors. All power and authority has been given to him by the Father in the wake of all that he has accomplished. So the Lord's reward was with God and not with men. And in one of the things that the Lord Jesus was promised, which was the main reason that he came to earth, was to get his bride, his church, to purchase it from its, from its condemnation. He purchased his church. He ransomed it. He set it free. And that was his reward. As David, if you recall, was given the daughter of Saul. Then Saul was the king of Israel. But on the condition that he would defeat Goliath, who was a menace to Israel. First Samuel 17, 25. 1 Samuel 17, verse 25. And if you backtrack in the chapter and read the conversation, Israel is scared to death. David shows up and is wondering what's going on. <laughs> and he asks the question, what shall be done to the man who defeats Goliath? What shall be given him? How shall he be honored? What is his reward? And so 1 Samuel 17, 25 says, So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that is Goliath? Who has come up to defy Israel? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and, sh and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches. See the condition. The man who kills Goliath, not the man who defeats Goliath, Goliath is not supposed to surrender. That's not the terms. He must be killed. And the man who kills him, the king, will enrich with great riches. 
and will give him his daughter. Assumes the king has daughters. Because if he has sons, then this does not work. <laughs> the king has daughters, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. In other words, they won't be under the law. And the daughter of the king is a picture of the church. And this was what was given David as a type of Christ by the king. King Saul as a type of God. I always say do not condemn these people too quickly before you have understood what God is preaching. Send Saul to hell before you have understood what God is preaching. Please. King Saul, a type of God who has a daughter who must be given to David. David is a type of Christ and Christ is getting his church, his church, his bride on condition that he defeats sin, death, condemnation, and everything that is against his people. And as a result of that, he also great, gets great riches and honor and glory, yeah, in the work of defeating Goliath. Verse 5 of Isaiah 9. You see, I told you that there's a lot of stuff in here. <laughs> Verse 5 of Isaiah 49. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. So the faithful servant now defines his mission. But before that, he wants us, he wants us to know that it was God who formed him from the womb. He wants you and I to know that. It's God who formed him. And that to say he was wholly conceived of the Holy Spirit if he should not be in Adam, and if he should succeed in his calling, in his mission, he could not be in Adam. It's part of his qualification. And so the thinking that Adam is passed only through the male or the husband, I believe to be faulty reasoning is false teaching. Why? Because the genes are shared from both parents. Hence, we have the X chromosome. To have a girl, you're going to have XX. And for a son, you're going to have XY. In both cases, you have an X. And if Jesus had the X chromosome from Mary, then he would still be in Adam. There's no doubt about that. Biologically speaking, he would still be in Adam. And I am saying, Jesus did not need the X chromosome of Mary to make him human. 
I do not agree with that reasoning at all. The nature of man is not decided by genes necessarily. It is God who makes the nature of man. So Jesus was still fully man and fully God, even though he was formed from and in the womb by God the Spirit. He said, the Lord has formed me. God formed him. Pay attention to this. Mary was not sinless. She was only a virgin. And she surely was not glorified. Therefore, she was a sinner. <laughs> the virginity of Mary is not what caused Jesus to be sinless. It is the Holy Spirit conception that made him to be sinless. And that is why the New Testament comes and says this in Matthew 1, 18 to 21. Hear this. Matthew 1, 18 to 21. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Mary has not been defiled. God has done a mighty work of forming a perfect human being in her womb. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the angel came and announced the birth of the Lord, declared his name, and also defined his mission and said, his name shall be called Jesus. Jesus means God is salvation. God is salvation. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. When I say that the Lord Jesus, his body, in the book of Hebrews, I don't remember the chapter, but the Lord says, 
a body you have prepared for me. In the volume of the book, it is written about me. I have come to do the will of, I've come to do your will, O God. A body you have prepared for me. The body of Jesus was prepared by the Holy Spirit. And he still was human, made in the likeness of sinful flesh. And the idea being, he was fully human, but without sin. And that does not remove or compromise his humanity. He just was perfect humanity, sinless humanity. And that took the agents of the Holy Spirit to do a creative work and made him as such. So let's tie Isaiah 49 verse 9 to what we just read from Matthew. From Matthew verse 18 to 21. Let's tie that to Isaiah 49 verse 5. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. So the mission of the Lord was defined thus in Isaiah 49 verse 5. He was formed in the womb to bring Jacob back to God. So that Israel may be gathered to him. And that is a very interesting play of words, and we need to pay attention to get the understanding. Jacob is what God called Jacob, the son of Isaac and Rebekah. That's what, that's, that was his name before God came and changed it to Israel. But you will also notice that in the New Testament, that is the name that God would use more often to call Israel when it was in reference to their sin and to their obedience, to their idols. Not always, but the pattern is there to see it. There is a pattern to that. When Israel was in trouble because of their sin, it's Jacob. Because Jacob was the hill catcher. He was the transplanter, the deceiver. In other words, the sinner. Whose name must be changed to Israel, the name of Christ. So the mission, pattern of this. So the mission of this faithful servant was to bring back Jacob. That is to redeem, to serve Jacob the sinner back to God. But here the second part of that verse 5. Because it explains the first part. There's going to be a change of name from Jacob to Israel as he has been redeemed. 
He is Jacob. But when the faithful servant comes, he is brought back to God as Israel. <laughs> Serving Jacob, but bringing back as Israel. Very related, but not the same thing. God says, so that Israel is gathered to him. Jacob is to be returned to God. But when that happens, it is Israel that is gathered to him. Israel then is redeemed Jacob. <laughs> Israel is redeemed Jacob. If one is not redeemed, they're still Jacob. The church is redeemed. So that's Israel. Yeah? It's clear. Go tell John Hagee that. And when the Christ has done that, he says, he shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord Jesus will be glorious to God for saving his people and bringing them back to God. So our salvation is tied to the glory of the Son to his Father. Yeah? Verse 6. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that it should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see the twofold nature of Christ's work. Because he has the elect from among ethnic Israel, and also the elect from the Gentiles right there. But when he comes, he brings them back together as one fold to become a light to the Gentiles who were in darkness. And this Jesus is coming and proclaiming God's salvation to the ends of the earth. So this servant alone is savior of both Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter where they are on this planet. If the testimony of Christ is not there, there's no salvation. But there's only one savior. There's only one God. There's only one salvation. Hear this from Jesus, John 10, 14 to 16. John 10, 14 to 16, the Lord said, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. This fold of ethnic Israel. This fold of the Jews. I have other sheep. I must bring them also. He has a responsibility. He must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, which means they will hear the gospel. And they will believe it. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. So which means there are no two peoples of God. There's only one flock. 
consisting of Jew and Gentile, elect from among the Jews and Gentiles. That's clear teaching from Jesus. Yeah? So be careful with the politicians when they try to define Israel for you. <laughs> you have to use the Bible. You have to use the understanding of God himself to say, this is where we are in the revelation of God's plan and purpose. There's only one people of God, the Jew and the Gentile, under one banner of Christ Jesus. If anyone has Christ, they are not of God. Isaiah 42, 6 to 7. This is speaking of Cyrus. But again, when you see Cyrus, you're seeing the testimony of Jesus. God says, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I'll appoint you as a covenant to the people. As a light to the nations. To open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So this is salvation language, is redemption language. And God's servant has been called in righteousness to accomplish the salvation of his people. And he has been appointed to be the covenant for the people. A matter that Zechariah, the priest, also spoke in respect of his son, John the Baptist, in the commissioning, in the birth and commissioning of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Christ in Luke 1, verse 79, but we'll begin as verse 76. Luke 1, 76 to 79. This is what Zechariah, the high priest, said. Remember, Zechariah had had a vision and he had gone mute for a minute. And then when he was able to speak, this is what he said, and you, child, and this is in reference to John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. John the Baptist as we have taught many times, was a picture of the law. And the law was there to prophesy, to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. The law was there to prepare the way through the types and shadows. It was giving testimony. It was prophetic, preparing the way. And that all was captured in the testimony of John the Baptist. You go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give his people the knowledge of salvation. By the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. With which the sunrise from on high will visit as the sunrise is Christ Jesus. 
John the Baptist is commissioned to begin to talk about Christ. And Zechariah says, because of the tender mercy of our God, which with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is an excellent language. It's amazing language. These guys could not have made up this language. It's too well written and just makes too much sense. Good sense. And so we are truly seeing even now the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of the sunrise going forth to the ends of the earth and proclaiming liberty and salvation to those who are in darkness and those who are in the shadow of death. Verse 7 of Isaiah 49, that says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors. So this is a serious matter of the rejection of the Lord Jesus, the hatred against him. The Lord Jesus would be despised and hated of men and the nation, of the uncircumcised people of Israel, the ethnic Israel, as we noted already from Isaiah 53. He continues and says, To the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. The Lord Jesus has been chosen, appointed of God, in spite of men's hatred, But when he shows up, every knee shall bow. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship. They shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen. Let the kings of the earth have fun for now. <laughs> or the playing games, he's showing up. The real king. Verse 8. As of 9, that says, The Lord, in an acceptable time, I have had you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. The day of salvation was the day of the crucifixion of the Lord. God helped the Lord Jesus to accomplish our salvation and also raise him from the dead. God helped the Lord Jesus in the day of his crucifixion to give him strength and also to raise him from the dead. Hebrews 5, 7 to 10. the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one 
able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, of his godly fear, of his reverent submission to God. He was heard because of his righteousness. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, humanly speaking. He learned obedience through suffering. Obedience as God calls obedience. To the point of the death of the cross. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Having been made perfect is not saying Christ was ever not perfect. It is saying having been made fit for the work that he was given to do. Because he was being inspected for blemish, blemishes. According to the Old Testament, Leviticus 22, 23, both the high priest and the sacrifice had to be inspected for blemishes to see if they will be qualified for the work of redemption. So having been perfected, the suffering also was going to produce or show if he had any defect. If he had any sin in him, the suffering would have showed it. Because if you subject Sean to a little bit of suffering, his sin is going to show. It's going to take long. <laughs> He's going to mumble and grumble and be mad. Not with Jesus. So having been made perfect, having been tested, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Verse 8, Isaiah 49, I'll preserve you. I will preserve you. This God speaking to the Son, to his suffering servant, I will preserve you. Nobody would take the life of Jesus away from him. That's what he said in John 10. No one takes my life from me. I have this commandment from the Father. And that's the commandment. I will preserve you. No one will take my life from me. And also, the Lord would not see corruption of his flesh. The Lord Jesus, even in the three days and three nights, did not stink. <coughs> because there was no sin in him. He was well preserved from corruption by the Holy Spirit and was also preserved by the resurrection from the dead. And that was God's promise to him. You go and do this work and I'll preserve you. I've given you this commandment. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. I'll give you as a covenant to the people. Matthew 26, 26 to 28. Matthew 26, 26 to 28. 
while they were eating. Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take it, this is my body. See the reference, the connection of the bread to his body. He wasn't saying when we eat the elements of communion, we are actually eating the physical body of Jesus. There's no transubstantiation going on. We don't have the elements turning into the bread and blood of Jesus. No. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, or this is the blood of the covenant, which is shed, which is poured out for many and for the reason, for the forgiveness of sins. Because of the forgiveness of sins. For the justification of the many for the cancellation of the debt, sin debt of the many. So this is how the Lord Jesus was given as a covenant for the people, given him by the Father to die in the place of his people as their substitute and representative. The Lord Jesus has fulfilled every requirement of the covenant for us to remain in it. He made payment for all their sins. He accomplished the forgiveness of all their sins of all time. He justified them. As I said, he met all the terms of their salvation to remove them from Adam by way of enacting the new covenant in his blood, as he said. This is how God deals with you now. He deals with you in this covenant of which I am. Christ is our covenant. He is our agreement with God. And that means the redeemed cannot be under the covenant of the law of Moses. It's not that we hate the law of Moses. It is that we understand the difference. Christ was given to be everything that we could not be under the law. What we could not do to the law or with the law. God gave him to be everything for us, to him. Christ, the faithful covenant keeper, every jot and tittle of that covenant fulfilled already on behalf of Paul, perfected, holy and righteous, and above reproach, because of the one who is the covenant. Christ is the covenant. God deals with Christ. If God at any point requires of anything from his elect, 
he goes to the one that he signed papers with. If Christ is the covenant, he alone shows up in the signature section. He alone has title to whatever is in the covenant. We did not sign anything in that covenant. We got into that covenant unconditionally. The condition was Christ. So we do nothing to keep ourselves in that covenant. We cannot get out of that covenant because we never put ourselves in it. (laughs) Okay? This is what a lot of preachers cannot preach. Because they're afraid that you become too free and they don't want you to be free. Yeah? And even Moses, this is just a knot of consideration. Moses could not even enter into the promised land with his own law of which he was a mediator. Moses could not go into the promised land with his own law which he received from Mount Sinai. He could not. So pay attention to these things. Verse 11. Sorry, verse 8. I'll preserve you and give you as a covenant people, as a covenant to the people, to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. So it is through the work of the Lord Jesus that the creation that was subjected to futility, to vanity as we have been learning from Romans 8, would be restored. And by him we have an inheritance of all that was made desolate by sin as we have been made as and co-as with Christ. See that. This all is describing the work and the accomplishments of the work I heard of his appearance in Palestine. When he shows up, this is what he was supposed to accomplish. Verse 9, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads and the pastures shall be on all desolate, desolate heights. So he will set the prisoners free, be their ransom, redeem them from the condemnation of sin, justify them. Don't tell me Jesus did not justify his people when he came. It's just impossible, man. There's no way to receive that. Luke 4, 14 to 19. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
That's God's anointing to preach the gospel. It is not to make money with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. The captives have been set free. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So these are all salvific terms. He's speaking to our salvation and redemption. Verse 10. We are ending at verse 11. Verse 10. They, that is the prisoners who have been set free, shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them even by the springs of water, which means he'll give them the Holy Spirit. Whenever you see springs of water, it's usually a reference to the Holy Spirit. He will guide them. And God talking about his commissioning of Cyrus and looking to Christ comes and says this in Isaiah 45, 13, and by the way, the statement that I just quoted from Luke was tying that part of the chapter to Isaiah 49 verse 9 of setting the prisoners free. Okay, that's why we went there. So in verse 10, in connecting it to Cyrus again, of course, when I said Cyrus, we are always looking to the fulfillment of that in Christ Jesus. This is what God said. I have aroused him in righteousness. We read that before. And I'll make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free. Again, that's proclaiming freedom. Is setting free of people in captivity. But pay attention to the last Sentence, without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. The exiles will go free from their captivity without any payment or reward. In other words, their freedom, their salvation would be unconditional to them. It is without price to them because it is of grace alone. And because it is by grace alone, it does not wait for your consent, for it to be effectual to you, for it to be true for all the redeemed elect. Salvation is not conditional. You only come to the knowledge of it. But your coming to the knowledge of it is not the cause of it. Okay? Verse 11, that will be our last verse. I'll make each of my mountains a road. And my highways shall be elevated. This is language that you find in Isaiah a lot of the mountains 
the elevations and them being brought low of making straight a way in the desert, creating a way where there was no way. This is very common Old Testament language. For example, in Isaiah 40, this is what it says, verse 1 to 5. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, or comfort my people. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. <laughs> Declare to them that their iniquity is pardoned, is forgiven. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord. And that would be in reference to some of allusions to John the Baptist. Verse 4, every valley shall be exalted. And every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we'll tie this to verse 11 of Isaiah 49. God says, I will make each of my mountains a rod and my highways shall be elevated in the coming of Christ. And God is speaking we want to end on this knot, but it's going to take us a minute to get to the end of it. God is speaking to the obstacles that would have created problems for the free movement of freedom of his people. Even obstacles that he has made himself. And he captures the matter of these obstacles using the metaphors of mountains. And the idea being they are very hard. They are difficult to impossible to climb and do so safely. And these are his mountains, he says. They are his obstacles that he created. And through those obstacles, he would, for some people, create a way, a road for them. And if you've driven, going to Minford, they have a very nice highway there. And they cut through the mountain. So as you're driving through, you see one mountainside, one mountainside, and there's a nice Easy, nice road right in between them. Otherwise, there was no way to make it through there. <laughs> you had to go through the mountain. They had to spend time and a lot of equipment and money to go through. That was an obstacle. And God says, these are my mountains. 
I'm going to make a way by speaking of salvation. Here this verse 4 of Isaiah 40. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. This is the creation of a smooth way for his people. But what is meant by his mountains? His mountains, the obstacles that are impassable. This is talking about the law. This is talking about the law. The law and its commandments are God's mountains that no man can pass through by reason of sin. They cannot get to the other side, no matter how much they will it or wish it. And if anyone should pass through, God has to make it possible. He must exalt, raise every valley, because if there was a deep valley, you would not be able to cross either. So the deep valley has to be exalted, elevated. And the mountain and the hill made law, brought law to level things, to enable us to walk without risking our lives. And I thought to connect this matter, to close this message with what I've read about the experience of Mount Everest. Because I thought it was just amazing and fascinating. From my reading, Mount Everest is the highest point on earth, topping at a dizzying height of 8,848.86 meters, that's 5.5 miles of height, of climbing, if you dare do it. <laughs> 5.5 miles. And it's part of the Himalayan range of mountains, and it does, in some sections, form the China-Nepal border. So that's what divides China and Nepal. And because of that, because of its height, it attracts a lot of enthusiasts, climbers, experienced and non-experienced, who come to try and conquer it and make a name for themselves. It is a game of glory. It's a game of conquest to get to the height of it. But whose glory shall stand, who shall win in this battle? Because it is a battle. Because the one who overcomes, it will feel glorious and we have their name aged in historical records. But I believe God means more by this magnificent creation. It's beauty and glory. It's attraction to sinners. You see, it's glorious. It's beautiful. And it attracts sinners, but to their death. <laughs> it causes death. It is the testimony of the law, because the law has glory. It is very attractive to the flesh, and people think they can do the law. They think they can climb up Mount Sinai. 
but they can only do so to their death. But the journey up Mount Everest is the most treacherous as they come on planet Earth. There's a website called endorphin.com. I stumbled on it an article of the treachery of climbing Mount Everest, titled Frozen Graves, The Bodies on Mount Everest. It says, the tallest mountain and the world's highest graveyard. The world's highest graveyard. And I'll draw some excerpts from it. I decided not to summarize it. I thought, let me just read what they actually say. Okay, so I'll make some commentary as we go along the way for you to see what it is about this mountain that is tied to the testimony of the law. That who says is believed that hundreds of bodies have found their last resting place on the messless crags and slopes of the mountain. The climbing world knows well the dangers of Mount Everest. The mountain has a zone literally known as the zone of death. And its victims have regained international renown, identified under humorous nicknames like Sleeping Beauty and Green Boots. These are actually bodies of people who are still lying there. This, the Sleeping Beauty is some woman who has been stuck there. She died and she has become a monument. And people see her. She's still beautiful. She's preserved by the cold. And Green Boots, some dude wears some green boots. If you go, you find, you see the picture. It's still there. But the adversities, the article says, of Everest don't deter everyone. Because the threatenings of the Lord do not deter everyone. You still hear people say they're doing the law or they're going to do the law. They're going to go and try and climb the mountain to their own glory, but to their own death. That article says... The mountain has claimed over 300 climbers in recent history, and about two-thirds of that number remain on the mountain. The current estimate of of remains left behind on Mount Everest total around 200. They are pretty much on the same path, on the same highway. It's startling for many individuals unfamiliar with Mount Everest's death toll to discover that most dead bodies on Everest remain forever. However, the reasons for leaving the bodies behind are purely logical. Why? Because it is prohibitively expensive and dangerous to try and recover a body from Mount Everest. The cost an extreme risk to the retrieval team that only very few bodies ever leave Mount Everest. Helicopters cannot reach the heights of Mount Everest above three, four, three to four kilometers. They can only fly that high above that. It becomes treacherous. They cannot. Yeah? 
because also of the wind, the wind is incredible. And lack of capacity. And they added this line, and many mountaineers prefer their bodies stay on the mountain if they pass there in the tradition taken from sailors lost at sea. So for them, it's a glory badge. Okay, I died on Mount Everest. I died on Mount Sinai. No, that's not salvation. That's not anything to glory about. The article says, the bodies of dead climbers on Mount Everest serve as guideposts as well as reminders of what becomes of anyone who dare underestimate the power of the mountain. Yeah, that statement. Like someone knows the gospel here. Those who dare underestimate the power of the mountain. The corpses mark the end of a journey for mountaineers of the past, but provide a consistent marker for today's climbers as they pursue the elusive summit. The summit of the mountain is what people are going there for, and it's elusive. Because the summit of the mountain is the picture of the righteousness of the law that is, that is, it is unreachable. It's unreachable. Many of the bodies remain un- unidentified, but some of Everest's victims, like Green Boots and Sleeping Beauty, <laughs> are well known and have grown to become the mountain's most permanent residents. You don't want to be a permanent resident of Mount Sinai. That's not the place to be. Yeah? They become monuments. The mountain has claimed the lives of of the world's most celebrated and experienced climbers. Even couples have perished there. I read the story of some Canadian couples a couple, I think, very sad to see. Just so, so, so sad to read the story. But why do people die on Mount Everest? For a number of reasons. I had found an article that was written by a doctor who does these expeditions, but I couldn't find it when I was writing my message. I was like, what happened to that? So I found another one from a website called Conversation, theconversation.com. And this is what it says about the reasons why people die on Mount Everest. The dangers faced by climbers pushing for the summit of Mount Everest are vast. These include the risk of avalanches, falling rocks, ice, the danger when crossing the Kumbu Icefall, hypothermia from exposure to extreme cold, falls, severe fatigue and exhaustion, and illnesses associated with extremely low oxygen because people get, they just lose control of themselves, consciousness. And he says almost 84% of deaths in non-shepherd climbers occurred on their descent as people were actually coming down. So you have the risk or falling even as you're going up, as you also are coming down. But 84% of the people died on their way down. After either successfully reaching the top of Mount Everest, or after turning back before reaching the summit, 
He says there, a shepherd, I believe, I want to check there's a mountain guide. Mostly this would be the name of the mountain guides from Nepal. These are the people, take people on expeditions there. So people sometimes not wanting to pay, they go there by themselves. But they say 84% of the people die when they're coming down on their descent. While some deaths on descent are related to falls, bless you, most are linked to extreme fatigue and exhaustion or sustained exposure to extremely low levels of oxygen. So this is what is happening on that mountain. This is what you would expect to find on this mountain. Everybody who knows there knows that they are risking death. They know that very, very well. And I believe God has made Mount Everest as a continuing testimony of Mount Sinai and people's attraction to the law. A reminder of an even more treacherous mountain which not only kills but condemns. Mount Everest only kills, it does not condemn. Mount Sinai kills and condemns. Those were, let's hear from those who were on Mount Sinai, <laughs> who understood something about what we are talking about. Let's go to Exodus 19. Remember, I told you that the message is going to be long, but we're almost done. I was going to come, I wasn't going to come and do this one by itself. I needed to tie it to the main message. Exodus 19, 10 to 13, testimony by those who were there. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. He shall set bounds for the people all around and saying, saying, beware that you do not go up the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through whether beast or man, he shall not leave. Anyone who touches the mountain, when the Lord shows up, he must be put to death. They must die. A testimony that Mount Everest does carry to some level. But there was only one condition to climb. If one should climb, God gave the condition still in verse 13. God said, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. The blast of a ram's horn was the signal to say it is safe to come to the mountain without dying. The question is, where do you get a horn of a ram from a ram that has died, from a ram that has been sacrificed, and that is Christ Jesus, 
What do you use to blow the horn? You blow air for it to make sound. That's the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit blows the horn of the crucified ram, of the crucified Christ, that's a signal to the people to go up to God and not die. Okay? Because a way has been made, you do not blow the horn until the ram has died, and you cannot blow the horn apart from the Holy Spirit. See the connection? So the Holy Spirit is now blowing the horn to us to say, go up to God because Christ, the ram of God, has made the way. And we'll finish this off with Hebrews 12 commentary, Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. And that giving a contrast of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. A contrast of law and grace and why you should not entertain the matter of law for your salvation or for your obedience to God. The writer of Hebrews gives this commentary from verse 18 of Hebrews 12. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who had begged that no further word be spoken to them, those who had God speaking on Mount Sinai were so terrified that they said to Moses, please tell God to stop talking. We feel terrible. We feel so bad. We feel so condemned. For they could not bear, verse 20, the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Even a beast, if it should touch the mountain, it will be killed. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. And that is the testimony of the law. And this is not talking about the ceremonial law. It's talking about the Ten Commandments. This is how terrible the Ten Commandments are, my friends. This is the testimony of the Ten Commandments. But then for the redeemed, God says, verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We have talked about that. The blood of Christ speaks better things of your righteousness and your reconciliation to God. It does not speak of revenge. That's the purpose of that line. And this is what the Lord, God's faithful messenger, has done. I will make each of my mountains a rod, that's verse 11, and my highways shall be elevated. His mountains, his Mount Everest has been made into a passable rod. Mount Sinai has been flattened, has been removed for the redeemed. 
removed by way of fulfillment and propitiation of our sin and a rod made for his people. There's no more death due to low oxygen on Mount Everest. There's no more death to those who stumble and fall even on their descent of the mountain. No more being left abandoned at the top of the mountain of death. For he will lose none of his ship. No more frozen graves for God's people and no more sleeping beauties. This is the work of the Lord Christ Jesus, God's faithful and suffering servant. This is what he has done for us. Mount Sinai does not scare us and neither does Mount Everest. To Christ be the glory forever. Amen. We are done. Let us pray and then we will have our communion. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for these many wonderful, beautiful words of the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God's suffering and faithful servant who redeemed us from the evil to come, who has set us free, us who were in darkness, us who were in the dungeon. He has ransomed us with his own blood, having become the covenant for his people. We thank you for the testimony of Mount Sinai, as it is also related to Mount Everest and our redemption from it. We thank you that we have made it, not because of our own righteousness, but because of his faithfulness and his mercy towards us. Be with us, Lord, and be with all who have gathered to listen to this message. And to everyone who shall come and hear this message, give them the grace and the stamina to hear it all the way to the end. We thank you, Lord. We honor you. Be with us in our going in and going out. And in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, good people. This is Berean message. <laughs> I'm not coming back to Isaiah anytime soon. So this is our installment from Isaiah for the rest of this year. If anything, we are going back to First Samuel because we need to be working the testimony of Christ from there and into Second Samuel. So hold tightly to all these wonderful things, okay? God bless you. We'll see you later.